You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music get ready jim i feel a healing coming on that's right the rock doctors are in i'm greg cott and i'm jim dirigatis we prescribe a midlife jolt of musical adrenaline to a new patient and we find out how the fcc's latest net neutrality policy will affect music fans that's all coming up on sound opinions This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, you and I get stopped all the time. We're buying coffee, we're shopping at the grocery store, we're at a bar at night. People want to know, what are we listening to? What music should I be hearing? And of course, we're always happy to to proselytize, but it's really nice to play the rock doctor on occasion as we do and get to know the patient, really go deep. You know, what what do you like? What can we recommend based on your likes, right? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, A two-week process, you really get to know one of our listeners on that kind of level. That's going to be later on in the show, Jim, but first we've got some music news. That is the Grateful Dead with Shakedown Street. Words that apply, according to some deadheads, uh, the ardent Grateful Dead fans, to the recent sale of the Grateful Dead's July 3 through 5 concerts at Soldier Field in Chicago, a celebration of the band's 50th anniversary. The concert promoter, Peter Shapiro, is calling this one of the greatest, if not the greatest, single band concert events in rock history. Ticketmaster is reporting that over a half million people lined up for the online sale. More than 60,000 people flooded the Grateful Dead office with envelopes requesting tickets. All told, we're talking about a million ticket requests for those three shows. They sold about 200,000 tickets, and they they are completely sold out. Now on the secondary market, tickets are showing up for prices of thousands of dollars some for over $100,000. Grateful Dead fans are basically desperate for these tickets, but uh, Shapiro, the promoter, has some good news for them. He's saying that they are currently exploring efforts or ways to broadcast the show, stream it somehow, get it on people's cell phones and on their laptops if they cannot make those shows in July.
Anyone who's ever been to a sporting event knows that riff. It's Gary Glitter's rock and roll. Greg, we have two stories updating court cases from the rock world. Gary Glitter has been sentenced at the age of 70 to 16 years in jail for a really sickening list of uh, of child sex crimes. All of those incidents date back to the 70s, but these clouds have been hanging over Glitter's head since the 90s. He was first convicted in 99. He moved to Cambodia. He was deported from that country, returned to Britain. He, he was also convicted in Vietnam in a court there. Glitter is going away for the rest of his life at the age of 70. Everybody get up. Another court case, Jim, uh, not nearly as dire as the Gary Glitter case, but this is a window into the world of copyright infringement in the music industry. I mean, these lawsuits get filed every week, it seems, and there's a good reason why many of them never end up in trial, because it's so embarrassing for a lot of the people involved. Uh, That is the case with this Blurred Lines lawsuit. We've been covering this. That big Robin Thicke hit from 2013. The Marvin Gaye family sued, saying that the Blurred Lines song used distinct musical elements of Gaye's 1977 hit, Got to Give It Up. And actually, Thicke initially was pretty forthcoming about that, even filed a preemptive suit trying to prevent the Gaye family from suing him because he recognized the similarities. Well, now the case has come to court in Los Angeles. And the testimony from that is just priceless. We have Thick basically saying he was on drugs while the song was being composed. And, quote, the biggest hit of my career was written by somebody else. And I was jealous and wanted credit. Thick got credit, uh, a co-writing credit yeah. for Blurred Lines. He said, I felt it was a little white lie that didn't hurt his career but boosted mine. He was referring to Pharrell Williams, whom he admitted basically wrote the song. They asked Pharrell after the hearing that day how he felt about Thicke's testimony, and his words were, this is what happens every day in our industry. (laughs) (laughs) I think that could be a one-act play. Yes. Please release me Greg, for our entire careers as critics, we have always kept Tuesday sacred. That's the day new albums were going to drop. We were going to have to write about them. As long as I can remember, new records have arrived in the stores on Tuesday, first on vinyl, then on CD. It hasn't meant much in the Internet age. Once again, a day late, a dollar short, the music industry is getting together and officially changing release date to Friday. Why? Because in the United Kingdom, it was Monday was the release date. In Japan, it was Wednesday. There were other days around the world. Now there's going to be one global release date when new music is available. It's going to be Friday. 
Except nobody's paying any attention. It's certainly not Beyonce or Drake. The people are releasing music now when they feel like it on the net. Uh, music industry, this would have been a good move in like 1991, <laughs> maybe. Jim, big news went down February 26th when the Federal Communications Commission voted to regulate broadband Internet service as a public utility. There has been this decade-long battle over what we call net neutrality. Big implications for the music industry. Tom Wheeler, the commission chairman, said this was all about preserving the Internet's role as a core of free expression and democratic principles. We're talking about some of the concepts that this country was founded on, reaching into the way the music industry is going to be conducting its business going forward. Yeah, as you said, Greg, big implications for consumers at home, big implications for the industry. To explain it all, we turn to John Brodkin, who's a senior IT reporter for Ars Technica. John, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. All right, John, it's striking to me, Greg and I have covered this net neutrality controversy for some time. And it's amazing to me that how many people, even well-informed people, still are hazy about exactly why it was important and about exactly what happened just recently in front of the FCC. If we put you on the spot and say, give us the three-paragraph primer. The idea of net neutrality is that Internet service providers, both your cable company or your fiber company at home, your DSL company, and also your cellular carrier are not allowed to interfere with what you try to do online. They can't block or throttle certain websites or applications, and they can't you know, speed up others in exchange for payment. The paid prioritization is a big part of this because people are concerned that if one company could pay for priority access to consumers, that would hurt startups who don't have the meaning means to pay for that. And the FCC just voted to enforce these principles by reclassifying both fixed and mobile internet providers as common carriers, which is the same designation that applies to the old monopoly telephone system. I, I do love that. I do like, you know, because there's so much in your world of technical reporting, and so much in the universe is changing by the minute, right? But they're basically saying it's like the phone. You, you don't pay more and get through better via long distance on the phone if you're richer. Why should the internet be different, right? I mean, that's basically what it comes down to, the, the whole argument that people opposing higher fees for faster speeds online, the argument they put forth. Yeah, it even actually goes back to the railroad because the, uh, <laughs> the railroad common carrier rules were then applied to the telephone system that the, the owner of the railroad couldn't charge different rates to affiliated shippers than to unaffiliated shippers. So we're looking at basically a pay-to-play type of system that this ruling supposedly avoids, you know, to put it in terms of uh, a radio analogy. Uh, the bigger, more well-budgeted companies won't have an inside lane uh, versus the average consumer sitting at home trying to, like, say, upload music on the Internet and being able to distribute that. So the idea is to create this or maintain this level playing field. On the surface, that seems like a good idea, a democratic Internet. 
Why has this been such a contentious issue for years and years? And in and, and a very narrow vote, was this approved by three to two in the Federal Communications Commission? Why so controversial? Why did it take so long to come to this decision? Well, there's a lot of history. I think one of the biggest events happened in 2007 when Comcast was uh, found to be blocking BitTorrent traffic, which is a type of file sharing. And so obviously Comcast was blocking certain traffic, and then the FCC tried to intervene. And then that led to a process where they would issue rules that would prevent that from happening again. So they issued the rules in 2010, and they were sort of weak, but for some reason Verizon sued anyway to try to overturn them. And in court, Verizon said, you know, if not for these rules, we would be exploring relationships where uh, companies could pay for priority access. Now, Verizon won that lawsuit, but then it totally backfired on them because in order to impose the rules that the FCC wanted to impose, they had to take a more uh, extreme step, which is to, to reclassify the broadband providers under this common carrier pr- provision, the one that applies to the telephone network. And so the, now the ISPs have, in a sense, backtracked. They all say, we now support net neutrality. We're not going to block content. We're not going to prioritize anything. But please don't reclassify us as common carriers because they're afraid that the FCC could use that to impose other things like rate regulation that they really don't want. And But even though the FCC has said they're not going to do that, there's still controversy over it. And you know there's a, a strong possibility that the cable companies will will sue over this. Give us a best and worst case scenario. Let's say there was no net neutrality. What is the best case scenario? What is the worst case scenario if these rules were not in place? Uh, I think the worst case scenario is that cable companies, telephone companies that offer internet service, wireless providers, they could pick and choose what kinds of websites and applications that you could use online. They could say, no, you're not going to use that because we're going to block it or if you want to use a music service, you have to use this one because this is the one who's paying us the best deal. That's kind of the worst case scenario, I think. We're talking to John Brodkin. He's a senior reporter covering the technical world over at Ars Technica. All right. So what does this mean, John, for for music lovers? It really impacts streaming audio, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think this is it's probably a bigger deal in the wireless world than the uh, the home internet world because you know a lot of people use their smartphones to listen to Spotify, RDO, any number of um, music streaming services. So the idea of these rules are that your wireless provider, that's you know Verizon Wireless, T-Mobile, AT&T, or Sprint, they can't block a certain music service. They have to give the same access to each one, and they can't accept payment to make one work better than another. Now, we have seen some interesting things here, like T-Mobile has this thing called Music Freedom that exempts certain music services from their data caps. It, it makes it so you can listen to Google Music, you can listen to Spotify, Pandora without using up your data cap, and it appears likely the FCC will allow that to continue. But, you know, there's an, also an argument against that where some people will say, well, only, even though T-Mobile isn't charging these companies for this right to not count against the caps, they're only doing the big companies that are not allowing, you know, small radio stations that have streaming services to not count against these caps. And the other thing is that if, if they can just exempt a random type of service from a cap, 
that shows how arbitrary the caps are in the first place. John, are we going to need more bandwidth to support unlimited usage of the Internet? I don't think so, because they're, they're buying up a lot of spectrum in order to build out these networks, and they can charge people for data use. So if you go over a certain amount of data, you have to pay another $10 for each gigabyte. There's plenty of ways they can make money, and that is not going to stop. They, the wireless providers actually just pledged to spend over $40 billion in new spectrum at an auction, so okay. they've got plenty of money. <laughs> I suspect it as much, but it's good to hear us, uh, you tell us we should not cry for big Internet. There is one interesting thing in this FCC ruling. The major wireless carriers, you know how they've mostly shifted from unlimited data plans to limited data plans. They've been doing this thing where they throttle your unlimited data plan if you still have one, if you pass like five gigabytes in a month. And so that really goes against the whole idea of unlimited. There's a portion of the FCC rules that says carriers cannot renege on the promise of unlimited data. So this is being portrayed as a victory in some circles for the music community, especially the independent musicians, smaller record companies. Would you agree with that, uh, John, that that is essentially what this represents? I mean, who are the losers in the, in the music world, if any, because of this ruling? Um, I can't think of any obvious ones. The only potential loser would be if the ISPs themselves wanted to prioritize their own music services. But we, we haven't really seen that happen yet, so I think this is more about preventing things that could be bad rather than stopping things that are already happening. I think the uh, the argument against it is that you know we're, we're destroying the free market capabilities of the Internet, the ability for these uh, bigger companies to grow and you know pursue new uh, revenue streams. Would you agree with that assessment? Uh, now, I think the idea is to keep the Internet open so that like the railroad or like the telephone system, anyone can innovate on top of it without having to run into a gatekeeper that says you have to either, you can't do this or you you have to pay more. We've been talking to John Brodkin, who's been covering net neutrality for Ars Technica. John, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we want to invite you listening to share your opinions. What's your take on the net neutrality debate? Call 888-859-1800 to leave a message for the air. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, the Rock Doctors Clinic is open for business. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and most of you know us to be rock critics. But don't forget, we're also rock doctors. Fully credentialed, Greg. You know, we hope we're always helping people discover new music and better appreciate good sounds. But sometimes we like to be able to give listeners more personal attention. In the past, we've helped patients with musical addictions, musical aversions, parents, children, couples, all these people who needed musical help. And this time we have an appointment with Sandy from Chicago. Now, Sandy wrote to us saying, I'm recently divorced after 17 years. It was an eye-opening and heartbreaking experience. I'm in my early 50s, and I feel like I lost or squandered my youth. I want to wake up my musical self. And Jim, how could we not respond to that plea? We were absolutely eager to help, Greg. If there was ever an argument to be made for the power of rock, I think this is it. Sandy's on the line with us now, so let's bring her out of the virtual waiting room. We're going to check her vitals, uh, so to speak, and give her our prescriptions. Hey, Sandy, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks. I'm excited to be on your show. Oh, you say that. Wait wait till the doctors have their way with you. (laughs) Why did you write in for a consultation with the rock doctors? Tell us your story. Well, I was in a relationship for over 21 years, 17 and a half of them married, and I was recently divorced. And it was a really jolting kind of experience. And I was... I've been feeling kind of stuck, feeling like maybe I missed something along the way. Not that my life passed me by or anything like that, Mm. but, you know, I'd like to get rejuvenated again. I was a very active artist as an actor and as a fine artist, and I put that aside to support my marriage, and I'm looking for something to get me excited again. Wow. Well, you know, Sandy, uh, we're not supposed to drop our professional demeanor here, but doctors are human beings. I know <laughs> what the experience of divorce after after that long a period is like. It's it's draining. You do need to throw everything up and have some new input. So you want some art to revivify you. That's right. So, Sandy, give us a little sense of what you were listening to while you were married, if anything at all, and maybe some formative musical tastes. Where are you coming from in terms of your musical likes and dislikes? Sure. Well, I'm definitely a lover of rock. I like hard rock. Heavy metal, I don't know about. You know, Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, Heart. Airplane, Bee Gees, things from the 70s, Talking Heads. I like the Gorillas. I love Three Dog Night and CCR and Bob Seger. I think that's the first time, Dr. Cott, we've ever heard gorillas on a list with CCR <laughs> yeah. and Three Dog Night. That's, uh, so there is some, some adventurous uh, spirit yeah. here for Sandy. Well, I, I like smart music, you know? I like, I like smart music. I like smart lyrics. I like artists who take risks. I love jazz. I love classical music. I used to sing opera. Wow. I love blues, you know? I'm, I'm not very versed in punk or rap or hip-hop or anything. I think I like hip-hop. Mm-hmm. You think you <laughs> I'm like not it? Sure. Yeah. So it sounds like you 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 kind of had these very intense passions for music formed early on, 
But during the period of your marriage, are you saying that some of this stuff faded away or you just weren't paying attention anymore? What happened during that period? Was he just in charge of the stereo? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I think I wasn't paying attention because I was so busy you know, and Mm -hmm. and so involved in what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I found your show years ago, and I'd listen to it, and I'd really disagree with Jim and and really agree with Greg and say, I'm never going to listen again. But uh, I always come back. (laughs) No, 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 wait a minute. (laughs) I heard Who Kill, and I thought she was amazing. Tune Yards? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I thought that was I loved her. I thought that was fascinating. That's great stuff. All right, yeah, and a really strong voice. Okay, as an opera singer, is the technical virtuosity important to you? How does that jibe with the hard rock end of things? They're very physical. Mm, Okay. (laughs) I used to think opera was silly and ridiculous and old-fashioned, and it is so athletic. Mm -hmm. The the reason opera singers don't move is they don't dare, Mm. you know? (laughs) They're holding an amazing amount of pressurized air, and the opera I've sung before, I, I felt like I was just planted. It was an amazing sensation. And with rock, I feel that in my body as well. I'm not so much a lyric person. A lot of times I can't understand them anyway. Mm. But I, I, I do like rhythm, things that are, are very visceral, I guess, sort of a visceral experience. You know, the power of opera, the power of, of heavy rock music, I could, you know, people have drawn those uh, parallels in the past. The other thing that was fascinating to me about your uh, likes and dislikes that you sent us earlier, you'd mentioned the Byrne-St. Vincent collaboration recently, I Love This love Giant. St. Vincent. She's fascinating. So what is it about those artists that connects to your previous likes? I I think, again, um, they're breaking molds. They are really courageous in following what they hear in their heads or what they see in their minds. You know, art is such a a goofy thing. You want to do what what your passion says, and then you stop and you go, I wonder if anyone will like it. And it's hard to ignore that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they they just seem very, very powerfully courageous. Wow. So you've given us a lot to work with here, Sandy. <laughs> Interesting area here is how you're using this music and when you listen to it. I mean, when when is music a part of your life? Do you, do you find that there's specific periods of the day that you find yourself listening to? And in, what are the circumstances? Or, or, or do you just sort of stumble into it during the course of your day? How does, how does that work? I love to hear music when I drive because I love to drive. And, you know, good, strong music adds to my sense of exhilaration. I very much like to listen to it when I'm working on my art. The background, depending on what kind it is, it can either inspire me or can sort of blank me out so that I don't get in the way. And sometimes I just want to listen to something, you know. I don't know if that's too vague or not. No, no that's are good. Are you listening more now that you're, you're single again? I am. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm making more time for it. So if 90% of pop and rock music are about uh, young people falling in love, are you drawn to stuff that's thematically more relevant to where you are in your life? I don't think I pay attention to that. I, I Like I said, I'm, I'm really drawn to the way the music's put together to try to get a sense of, of where the artist is coming from when they're creating their music. Sometimes when I hear lyrics that pertain to me, I cry. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, something I really enjoy doing too much. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. All right. Okay. I think I have a prescription, Dr. Koch. Shall I uh, start off with Sandy? Absolutely. All right, Sandy, I, I've been thinking about this. Like I said, I've been where you're at. I knew what I needed at that time. I want to give you something that's, A, really young and cutting edge and much buzzed about right now. This is going to be the sort of band they just put out this record. People are going to be talking about it all year, and everybody's going to say, hey, I first heard about them from Sandy. <laughs> you know, she, she may be, you know, she may be quote-unquote middle-aged, but she's pretty amp, all right? <laughs> so I wanted to give you something that, you know, because, hell, you know, you're going to be getting out there dating again. You're going to, you know, this is just the beginning of a new act. So I wanted to give you something new. The band is called Summer Cannibals, though. And I I think that they have enough touchstones to sort of the classic rock that you like. This is a young band out of Portland. And they're very much connected to sort of the Sonics, the Wipers, that garage rock sound of the Pacific Northwest in the 60s. But they're giving it a modern take with a fair amount of melody and a lot of wit. It's a very strong female vocalist who leads the band, Jessica Boudreau. And some of the first words she sings, and it's that wonderful mixture of sweet harmonies and growling guitars and hard-hitting rhythms, she sings, I'm back where I started from. And so I think she's at this point throughout this record, Show Us Your Mind, where a relationship has ended and she's considering starting over. You just look at some of the song titles, Something New and Not Your Turn. And it's optimistic. It's empowering. It's not. She's not sitting around pining for anybody as I hear it she's talking about let's bring on the next act and I just think it's catchy and fun and it makes you feel good it's going to make you drive a little bit too fast probably (laughs) Uh, but all of these are good things heck it's rock and roll and you need some it sounds fascinating. I love the word cannibal. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. A little bit of rock history there. I think that the band name Summer Cannibals comes from a track that Patty and Fred Sonic Smith wrote together. They were married. He died, leaving Patty Smith a widow. They put out a record in 1996 with a song called Summer Cannibals. Huh. So these, these are 20-something-year-old young musicians, but they know their rock history. Can't wait to hear it. Okay. You know, we, we've screwed up before, though. If it doesn't work, <laughs> don't hesitate to tell us. <laughs> Yeah, I'll keep that in mind. Well, Sandy, I have to say, I have to agree with Dr. DeRogatis. It's a fascinating challenge because I think your your tastes, they're all over the board and yet connected. There, there's threads that you can pick up on in, in what you like and what, what moves you. It is a bit challenging to come up with something that's going to move the needle for you a little bit in terms of getting you into the next generation of artists. Because I, I sense that you wanted something new. You didn't want something from the deep past. You wanted right. something, hey, give me something now, something that's happening now that will appeal to, to my taste. At the same time, she had some catching up to do because yeah. she feels like she has some, some years lost. For sure. Right. For right. sure. Feel, you know, rejuvenated. You know, another one, uh, an artist that you had mentioned, you'd, you'd mentioned Arcade Fire, I think, too, as one of the artists you were kind mm-hmm. of interested in exploring a little bit more. And I could see why, given, you know, your history with some of this other music, why that would be interesting to you. 
and I could certainly you know steer you in that direction, but I hit on this band because of that reference. It's a band called Metric out of Toronto. And a couple of other things you said really jumped out at me. You loved the rhythmic, you know, sense, you know, the drive, the sense of, you know, I'm I'm driving in my car, I want something that's going to be a little bit exhilarating. So connecting REM talking heads that new wavy kind of rhythm, you definitely hear that in in Metric's music. And then the other note, you're somewhat of a jazz buff. I know that you mentioned that you loved classic jazz. Well, the lead singer of Metric is a woman named Emily Haynes, and her father is a poet, Paul Haynes, who actually worked on one of the most famous modern jazz recordings of all time. It was a Carla Bley recording called Escalator Over the Hill. So Metric is this band led by Emily Haynes and a guitarist named Jimmy Shaw. They've had five albums out, and the one I want to steer you toward is a record called Fantasies that came out in 2009. And I saw them tour a couple of festivals after this record came out, and they just owned the place. They had these huge anthems, and yet there's still a tie to a lot of those hard rock, classic rock elements that you like as well. So you're going to hear threads of all of the things you like in this music, it'll be interesting to me to see if this band pulls them together in a way that appeals to you. But I'd like you to give Fantasies by Metric a shot. These sound fantastic. I'm, I'm really excited to try these out. Well, you know, Dr. DeRogatis and I have overprescribed at times. Uh, there have been times where we have failed miserably. But Sandy's just got the attitude. Yeah. Look at you know, the enthusiasm in her voice yeah. is infectious. Drugs are good. I, you know, yes. They really, really are. The better living through chemistry. There right? you go. There you go. All right, Sandy, we'll check in with you next week and we'll see how you fared with our prescriptions. You All right, Jim, it's been a week through the magic of radio. Time to check back with our patient Sandy in Chicago. Hello? Hey, Sandy, how are you? I'm good. Jim and Greg from Sound Opinions. Hi, Greg and Jim from Sound Opinions. Hey, Sandy. So a week later, we wanted to check up on you. We're your doctors. We want to see how the prescription (laughs) we gave you took. Notice, mm-hmm. notice she laughed at that. I yes. like that. <laughs> Already, I, I feel the bad vibes, Dr. DeRogatis. <laughs> I think we're just going to get the woodshed here. This is where okay? she has to see our license, and then <laughs> yeah. we're going to have to run the I'm other way. I'm just very irreverent. I treat all my doctors this way. That's so. all right. There you go. Okay, we feel, we feel better now. We got no credentials. We got no... <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> all right, so let's recap. Me, Dr. Cott, I prescribed the metric album Fantasies, and Dr. Dewar Goddess, your prescription was? Summer Cannibals, show us your mind. We should remind people what Sandy's problem was. She went through this painful split of a long-time relationship. A lot of the music she consumed over the last 15, 20 years came from her now ex-partner. She's out there rediscovering the world. She wanted some new sounds. Is that doing it justice, Sandy? Yeah, pretty much. So Summer Cannibals, show us your mind, this young band out of Portland. I thought this was a great album. Hey! You know, this is what I think of when I think of a rock band.
I loved the vocalist. I loved the way she interpreted the lyrics and how she can turn a phrase and, you know, really make a picture and a personality come out. And that's saying a lot because you have this background in theater. And mm-hmm. Jessica Boudreau is is very, uh, you know, a dynamic theatrical uh, presence, right? Right. You know, it, it felt like there were some punk qualities in it. I will say, as background music, for if, you know, I was working on my art or something, it would be a little monotonous. It's one of those where when I'm actively listening to it, I'm really engaged because Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's very unique and striking. Give us a song or two that you really connected with, Sandy. I loved Not Your Turn. It has a great opening riff. I almost feel like I recognized it. So that's that classic rocker in you, the lover of Zeppelin and Hart. Yeah, it has a great drive to it. I like the lyrics, I'm fated to disappear and you're too fated to care. Funny how a face can turn so quick when you don't say what you mean. Is that working some things out for you? Or at least validating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, well, she's she's nobody's sucker, Jessica Boudreau, and, and she's got some anger, and she's getting it out in this music. There's no whining. There's no self-pity. It's just very direct, mm-hmm. and I like that. I think the very last song, TV, is really a great way to end the album. It's actually kind of different from all the rest. It's a little more subtle, a little lower key. say everyone on TV is making love like it comes so easily but reality feels like I'm turning completely inside out. I thought I thought that was a really kind of a, a nice way to sort of, you know, button it. All right, how about Dr. Cott? He prescribed the Canadian rock band Metric and the album Fantasies. How'd he fare? I loved his too. You know, it's interesting because there's similarities but they're also quite different. This one is a better background band for me, more variety, you know, I'm not listening to lyrics not paying a lot of attention, just variety on the ears. They have a, a great ability to draw in the listener but then take them somewhere else you know kind of surprise you that's a good observation sandy the metric elm fantasies we're talking about here i think a lot of the lyrics talk about you know sort of dreams outside the margins of what 
is prescribed to you by society. That's what I'm hearing in this record a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Emily Haynes is singing about stuff like, is it ever going to be enough? It sounds like you've connected with those kind of ideas in, mm-hmm. in the music. You know, there's more layers to the music. They have keyboards and tambourines. They had more variety in their music. That's their personality. I Alive, I really liked. I've talked to other people who are familiar with the band, and they really like that one too. And I really liked Stadium Love as well. I was surprised how much I liked Stadium Love because it, it is very subtle. Mm -hmm. And I made a point of really listening to it. And interestingly enough, it made me think of the Hunger Games for some reason. I mentioned, I think, to you when I was prescribing this album that you had sort of a little bit of a jazz thing going on, and I mentioned uh, that her father, Paul Haynes, is a poet who collaborated with Carla Bley on some jazz pieces. So I think she's got a little bit of that poetic sensibility. Yeah, they're they're unique. You know, I'm not hearing, I love you, baby, baby, please don't do me wrong. Yeah, she she definitely does not do that. Instrumentally, the band has a certain amount of variety, at least I thought they did. Mm -hmm. But how do you feel that they use the instrumentation in the way they're producing their records? You know, sometimes music is just a background for lyrics. This was very much a part of what was going on. You know, they would isolate drums. I felt like there were lots of layers, like they they made a point of being musicians. I'm just looking back at our notes when we first talked to you about what to prescribe. The thing I circled was this sense of exhilaration that you were looking for. So it sounds like from that standpoint, Dr. DeRogatis and myself, I think we both honed in on that. Well, I, I was very impressed with with how the two of you, you know, really looked at who I am and tried to find something that fit but was different still. 
Wow, this is like the nicest patient we've ever had, Dr. Dear Goddess. We've it's never gotten a, a double endorsement, I don't think, on anything we've done in, in recent years anyway. It's making me uncomfortable. Just give us something you hate. Just yeah. anything you hate. Come on. I, I didn't. There was nothing on them I hated. I will say I was a little surprised you didn't prescribe something completely different. You know, I think both of us have a tendency to do that. And we've learned the hard way that maybe we sometimes go a little too far with our, you know, hey, let's really stretch this further. It's kind of we more like, let's have, take an interim step instead of going all the way. We have barely dodged some malpractice suits through the years from some of our patients. It's just music. It's just, well, hey, it's never just meds, music. You know, you know, then I'll have an issue. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, Sandy, for coming to us. I'm glad we were able to help you. Well, I'm, I'm so glad, you know, that you were able to help me, too, because I'm just thrilled. I'm thrilled. If you want to make an appointment with the Rock Doctors or want to nominate someone you think is in need of urgent musical assistance, fill out a patient form at soundopinions.org. And what would you prescribe to Sandy or someone getting over a big breakup? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, a review of the new album from punk band Screaming Females. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a track called Empty Head by the band Screaming Females from their sixth album, Rose Mountain. Greg, we had Screaming Females on the show a couple of years ago when they were touring behind their last album. Their history goes back a decade. They were young people who met in high school in suburban New Jersey, outside of New Brunswick, led by Force of Nature guitarist vocalist Marissa Padenoster, her rhythm section bandmates Jarrett Doherty and King Mike. They came up playing in basements in New Brunswick on that fertile music scene in VFW halls, real DIY 
Get in the Van Underground Punk. They began to get a lot of attention over the years, over the course of five albums, wound up opening huge shows for Garbage, The Dead Weather, Arctic Monkeys, festival appearances, working with Steve Albini on that 2012 album Ugly, Paternoster being named one of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time by Spin Magazine. Where were they going to go after a decade of doing this for album number six? They have turned for the first time to a big-name outside producer, Matt Bales, who is best known for working with kind of those hipster new metal bands like Mastodon and The Sword. Let's play a track from the new album, the title track, and uh, we'll give our reviews. This is Rose Mountain by the Screamales, as fans call them, on Sound Opinions. That is Rose Mountain, the title track from the new Screaming Females album. Jim, as you mentioned, the band's been around for six albums. Marissa Paternoster is a force of nature, this diminutive dynamo. I mean, she's a very tiny woman, but man, what a guitar player. Never seen a bad Screaming Female show. They have made three incredible albums in a row prior to this. Power Move in 2009, Castle Talk in 2010, Ugly in 2012. I think people who are coming to the Screaming Females for the first time and hear this album are going to like it quite a bit. It's a solid record. The songs are very catchy. They're very melodic, more so than maybe any other Screaming Females record in the past. The problem, as a longtime Screaming Females fan as I am, is that it feels like it's masked some of her personality. There's a lot of bloodletting in these lyrics. She's coming off a breakup. She's alluding to some health issues. These are really powerful emotions that seem to be somewhat masked by 
the conventionality of these songs. This is a great rhythm section that she has, but they sound competent but merely ordinary on this record. She's got some great riffs on this song, some great moments where her guitar comes out front, but for the most part, I feel like she's being reined in. This is not a terrible record by any means, and I think it's a great stepping stone for new Screaming Females fans. But once you hear those three previous records, you're going to go, wow, this is where that personality just bursts out of those speakers, and those are the records that people should be gravitating towards. As a result, I think Rose Mountain is probably the fourth best record of their career. I'm going to give it a try it. Wow, I I think you're being really harsh there, Greg. You know, when Marissa and the band were on Sound Opinions a couple of years ago, she was talking about admiring bands like Radiohead and the Smashing Pumpkins, right? There's only so long you can scream at the top of your lungs and make a violent noise in the basement. I think this is a real step toward maturity. I think the lyrics are intense. I think the guitar solos, which is where, you know, all that catharsis, all the pain in her life comes out, are really amazing. And I have no problem with them adding a dose of melody, slowing down the tempos at times. You know, you, you can only be a raging 16-year-old <laughs> for so long. I think this is a step toward maturity that puts her in the realm of, you know, Patti Smith, of P.J. Harvey. Not that it's that masterful, but it's saying I'm an artist who still has a lot to say. I'm only beginning my career, and there are many sounds I still want to explore. In the past, you know, people would shake their heads and why are you making me listen to this? All right, that was painful. I don't think anybody can listen to this album and say it's painful. It's going to give you the adrenaline, but it's also going to give you the melody. It's a great gateway into Screaming Females, a fine, fine album, so it's an enthusiastic buy it for me. What's on the show next week? Jim, you and I are going to go through our recent collections and dig out some buried treasures, records that you need to hear but may not have heard about. As always, we have some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. I'm in the phone with this one Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Ian calling from shockingly sunny San Francisco. Uh, I'm calling about your recent secret love song Valentine's Day episode, but I'd like to suggest another great secret love track. It's a Pity by one of the queens of Jamaican dance hall, Tanya Stevens. Song's sultry and sexy, sure, but It also has one weird little lyrical side where Tanya speculates about whether the world will one day evolve enough so that she and her lover's wife can share the man in a civilized manner. Thanks for the great shows. Always appreciate them. Hi, Greg and Jim. My name is Carl, and I'm in Chicago. Uh, I hope it's not too late to comment on this, uh, but I found Jim's review of Father John Misty's I Love You, Honey Bear, in which he called the album misogynistic and, quote, mean to be pretty unfair, especially in light of the fact that you had just been interviewing Run the Jewels in the same episode. 
Now, I happen to enjoy Run the Jewels and LP and Mike Killer Mike seem like pretty nice guys. But if we're looking exclusively at lyrics, like you did with Father John Misty, you're talking about a group that on the first song of its first album brags about pulling a pistol on a woman's poodle or baby and ultimately shooting that B-word. So what you're telling me is that rap is given another pass for what could fairly be called a tradition of misogynist bravado, but Josh Tillman can't crack a joke about a woman's overuse of the word literally and then proceed to poke fun at himself for misusing the word malaprops in the course of judging her. Uh, perhaps there's a little meanness to that, but it also has kind of this honest, curmudgeon quality to it. I think it's humorous, self-aware songwriting about those mundane but grating aspects of a tanking relationship. Anyway, I love your show, but make sure you're aware of your own double standards for misogynistic content when it comes to different genres of music. Thanks, guys. Well, when it was popping. Yeah. Yeah. Running through the six with my walls. Count money, you know how it goes. Hey, I, um, my name is Sam. I'm 10 years old. I just listened to your episode of um, Reviewing Drake. Um, you guys did not... You guys are haters. He does not sound like Kanye West. I want that Bugatti just to hurt. I ain't rock my jury, that's on purpose. Niggas want my spot and don't deserve it. Hi, this is Carolyn from Chicago. I'm calling you to thank you for your program on Pink Floyd. Getting the perspective of Nick Mason on the band and the music was a real treat. I listened to the program twice, and I simply adore Pink Floyd, so this was, this was wonderful. Thank you so much, and keep up the good work. Bye-bye. Hey guys, my name's John. I'm calling from beautiful Honolulu, Hawaii. Just listened to the Nick Mason Pink Floyd show with the Drake review. It was an incredible interview. Nick Mason, what a guy. What a hero. If you want to be like a rock star, that's how you want to be happy. It's a real Hawaiian style that the Englishman has. You guys take care. Aloha. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, Call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.